0: Today's episode of Rates and Barrels is presented by the Salvation Army. Your donations can help those affected by COVID-19 find help and hope. To give, ask your smart speaker to make a donation to the Salvation Army or make your gift at SalvationArmyUSA.org. Rated Barrels episode number eighty eight. It is Tuesday, April twenty first. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we're going to take a look back at a fantasy draft from the nineteen eighty two season that I took part in on Monday night. Yeah, that sentence probably wouldn't have made sense a month ago, or especially two or three months ago. But we did it, and it was actually pretty fun. Uh, The Korean baseball organization has an opening day now on the calendar coming up in the first week of May. We're going to answer some questions about losing the feel of a pitch. Uh, a question about Alec Bohm and his 2020 role. And perhaps we'll get to some questions about player interest in fantasy baseball as well. If Eno's got any uh, good stories from being a fantasy guy in a clubhouse, uh, we'll, we'll share those later on in this episode. How's it going for you on this Tuesday, Eno?
1: It's going well. It's going well. Slept well for once. That's awesome. I had a dream that I went to the store. Tuesday
0: mornings. normally the morning I make my supply run, and this week it's going to be Wednesday because this is a crazy week. And in my dream, everything was kind of normal except for I was at a Costco, and they had lots of Clorox wipes in stock, which was a relief to me in my dream. But people also had giant croissants, just the biggest croissant you could imagine <laughs> <laughs> it was the, as wide as the top of the cart, and everybody in my dream was was buying at least one. Some people, some idiots were jamming two in there. <laughs> it, I, it, the only thought I remember from my dream before I woke up was, wow, I got to get one of these croissants. <laughs> <laughs> You were hoarding giant croissants. I just can't believe anybody was buying two. They weren't even wrapped in plastic or anything. They were just sitting Dude, there on top of the, the cart. funniest
1: thing too is the croissants go pretty stale pretty quickly. So like <laughs> they're rushing home to like eat that with their family of eight or whatever. Well,
0: somebody somebody got two. They must have the uh, the extra large SUV to uh, to fit those in. But was, imagine driving by that person There's just two croissants in the back. <laughs> I wonder we we kinda we passed Bryce Harper leaving a spring training game this spring. You and I we were driving down the road and Yeah, croissant in the back. <laughs> probably did the, the windows were tinted, but that's probably why he's, <laughs> up. he's got a bunch of croissants at the back of the SUV. Uh but let's start with this eighty two draft because this was a a season that took place before I was born and you know, even if it'd been like nineteen eighty nine, it's not as though I was playing fantasy baseball when I was five. So Uh, Going up against a lot of people in the XFL, uh, our friends, Ron Chandler, Jeff Erickson, uh, Todd Zola, uh, lots of other cool industry people, Peter Kreutzer, who has a big hand in Tout Wars. Uh, These guys all lived that season. Some of them even played fantasy baseball during that season. So I felt like I was an underdog. And for prep, I didn't go overboard. I didn't run a set of dollar values from 1982 and, and work off of that. I decided to do it in kind of a modern but yet traditional sort of way. I had player lists and stats in front of me. Uh, Basically, imagine that I went to the library, printed off a bunch of stats, and then just crossed them off. That's more or less how I drafted. Uh, But the 1982 season, if you pop it open on fan graphs or baseball references, we're talking about it, you'll see pretty quickly that it doesn't look at all like a modern baseball season. Pretty much nothing about it looks like a modern baseball season. And I had the fifth pick in this draft. It's a 12-team league, five-by-five, usual categories. We all had the stats in front of us. It was wild to me that Ricky Henderson, who had 130 stolen bases that year, was actually still there for me to take with the fifth overall pick. And I'm wondering this morning, with a clearer mind, if that actually ended up being a mistake, even though it's a great season for fantasy purposes, I just wonder if it's not actually a top five season in that particular year.
1: Yeah, well, stolen bases are are probably the way that it looks the least like today. Because not only did Ricky Henderson have 130, but Tim Raines had 78. Lonnie Smith, who I remember pretty well, but uh, I just remember him as being pretty mediocre. I remember the end of he his must, career with must have the Braves. That his best year. Yeah, huh? Like I, I remember him in Atlanta
0: on the, yeah, the that's good me too. Braves teams of the 90s. And, and by then, you know, I don't think he was running quite so much. He was
1: 68 stolen bases in 82. So let's see. That's, oh, okay. That was like his first full season. And then he, he did steal uh, like 140 over the next three. And then he was the Royals. And by the time he got to the Braves, uh, his high was 25. And he did have a really good season with the Braves. One year he was 315-21, homers 25 stolen bases, which is amazing because his career high in homers otherwise was 9. That's
0: a totally goofy season. He had an 8.1 war that season. Yeah.
1: That's more than he had in the previous five. But 82 was the second best season with 5.4.
0: Yeah. So I I think what happened in this league, I, I won stolen bases by a lot because as i was tracking my roster i wasn't doing a good enough job of figuring out what was really left in the pool like normally i've got draft software and i can kind of look what other teams have and we had standings running we were checking them at the end of each round looking at the counting stats looking at what we needed
1: oh and i noticed you also drafted von hayes which is a 32 stolen bases you didn't even need
0: yeah that was see that's the kind of stuff i was doing in the later rounds that I I was probably taking the best available player based on the system I was using, but not taking the best available player for me in a league where I already had known stats. (laughs) That was that was probably the mistake that I was I was making most often.
1: And it's really flipped on its head. Like we're here where everyone's chasing stolen bases. There, you kind of want to chase power because if you do this, if you if you sort by stolen bases. Uh, the bottom of the page has 27. That's Rafael Ramirez. It's the 30th guy. But there are, um, you know, 25 guys who stole 30 bases. Uh, and there are 11 guys who stole 40 bases. So there's a, a fair amount of stolen bases. But if you sort by homers, the league leaders were Gorman Thomas and Reggie Jackson with 39. Uh, and you're already out of 30 by 16th. So Robin Yount with 29, it was 17th. So um, in this one, you almost want to chase homers, it seems like. Yeah,
0: you kind of need to put a premium on something that we've not put a premium on in our game
1: in a very long time. And that is jarring. Uh, Where did Dale Murphy, uh, Mike Schmidt, Pedro Guerrero, where did they go?
0: Murphy was the third overall pick. Pedro Guerrero went sixth overall. So maybe you should have taken him over Ricky Henderson. I took Mike Schmidt in the second round. He actually fell back to me. That's great. Yeah, I thought that was pretty good value. And I think the other mistake I made in my foundation, if if Ricky Henderson wasn't a mistake, maybe that was value-wise the right call. Gary Carter had an amazing season in 1982. It's a two-catcher league. The catcher pool, you think it's bad now? look at some of the dudes playing catcher in the 80s and, <laughs> and find find two. I mean, this is a 12-team mixed league. People used to play 12-team AL only. It, I can't even, can't even imagine how ugly the production was
1: at the bottom of that pool. Gary Carter, Lance Parrish, Terry Kennedy... Um... You know, Bo Diaz and Tony Pena, but they were kind of bat, like defensive guys.
0: And Pena went pretty late, and relative to the pool, he actually was, I think, a little undervalued because I think one thing that I was doing he that was two ninety six. He hit two ninety six, which is pretty odd for a catcher back then. Yeah. Run production is also a pretty steep cliff. Runs and RBIs. I, I think Pena must have been hitting a little higher up in the order than most catchers were hitting at that time, because his run and RBI total made him sort of stand out to me a little bit later on.
1: Just but it's war, but just by war, um the fifteenth best catcher owned in your league, right? Gene Tennants <laughs> hit two fifty eight with seven home runs, eighteen runs and eighteen RBI. That's terrible. And let's say you, that's okay, that's a war number. Let's look at somebody who's more likely to have been drafted, more plate appearances. Rick Dempsey, 402 plate appearances, 270, five home runs, 35 runs, 36 RBI. <laughs> oh, man. You think your second catcher in AL only these days are bad. That's pretty bad. That that seems like a like my second catcher in, in, in AL labor.
0: <laughs> yeah, I ended up with Mike Heath. He was the second to last uh, pick that I made. So I, the twenty second round. So I went Gary Carter early, Mike Heath late.
1: Oh, he didn't do well by war. What it what
0: he hit hit Homers or something? No, he hit three. <laughs> three. <laughs> he had eighty two combined runs and rbis at that point that was the best i could do
1: (laughs) oh my god
0: so so the thing that i i thought was probably more important coming out of it than i realized going into it was the shape of each position you know where the production is coming from relative to each position because it looks so different than the pool that we have right now and shortstop yeah, shortstop is totally different back then. I mean, totally different. we've talked about how recently shortstop is loaded to the point where you could go middle and possibly UT with shortstop eligible players. Not you, back then. No chance you're doing that back then. And I think that's what drove the value of, of Robin Yount. He was the second overall pick. Doug Dennis made that pick and
1: Oh, that's beautiful line though. 29 homers, 129 runs, 114 114- RBI, 14 stolen bases, 331 average. That's a good first-round pick for sure. Especially since, look, what you're saying, the fourth-best shortstop was Todd Cruz with 16 homers, 44 runs, 57 RBI, and a 230 average. And it gets worse after that with UL Washington with 10 homers. Dale Barrow with 10 homers. The eighth-best shortstop that year was Alan Tremel, and he had nine homers and 19 stolen bases.
0: Yeah, I took Alan Trammell in the 13th round. Wow. I mean, that felt like okay at that point. And part of this, too, with rookie Henderson as the first pick and some of the hitters I was building around, I ended up having to punt batting average, uh, which probably isn't smart in the 80s. Probably no, not what you want to do. had some decent ones. Yeah, you can find some guys that at least keep you afloat. I think you can do the, uh, the DJ LeMayhew, Joey Gallo sort of trick where you find some guys who could... Be up there. well, especially when you know what they're going to do. You get a few guys who are in the race for the batting title, and you get some of those cheap power boppers with low averages, and you end up doing fine in that category. And you end up with a lot of balance. So, uh, the exercise itself is a lot of fun, man. I, I I would do it again.
1: I think I would have done terribly in it, and I think uh, because it exacerbates my two weaknesses and removes my biggest strength. So, I was thinking about this when looking at Pedro Guerrero. So. Pedro Guerrero in, uh, night in 1982 uh, had the seventh seventh most WAR with 6.2. He had a great season: 32 homers, 22 stolen bases, 304 average. And in fact, we were talking online today a little bit about short peak guys, um, and he is actually right there. You know, in terms of a four year peak uh, from '82 to '85, uh, he put up uh, 13, 14. A Nineteen, tw- almost 23 war in 4 years averaged uh, somewhere around 28 homers and 20 steals with a 300 average so really good player for a short peak uh, Dodgers fans will know him however the year before uh, Pedro Guerrero in 1981 had played well but only in 387 appearances to 12 homers and, and 5 stolen bases against 9 caught stealings and, you know, I would have been all over him if we didn't know what the 1982 stats were. If I was to say, hey, look, he had really good power, made contact, good plate discipline, stole some bases uh, and now has a full time role, you know, playing the uh, the depth charts and the, you know, the stuff that I talk about here. I don't know what we would have had for exit velocity back in the day, but, you know, I would have uh, this would have been somebody that I feel like I would have been all over. Except in this draft, everybody's all over him because they all know he's going to hit 32 homers and 22 stolen bases. So, like, it therefore uh, shifts the, 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 the person who wins this is the best at uh, tracking, like, in in-draft tracking, I think. Right. And since modern draft software
0: doesn't adapt to a league this old, you can't really do it unless you build well, your own way of doing it.
1: Yeah, or or maybe it flips back to my method, which is I don't actually use uh, in draft software. So my method is I just uh, I just round everybody that I've got, and I'm like, okay, thirty, thirty three. I've got a hundred stone bases. Yeah, I, I think. Tracking at
0: least your own team more than I was tracking mine last night will help, because winning yeah. steals by 50 steals or 60 steals...
1: Like, what you end, end up with? Like, 250 steals or something? Yeah, I think it was 280. 280! My God! Oh, my God. I Sometimes I I'm okay leaving a draft with 80 these days. <laughs> no. I know that I'm not going to win it, but I'm like... You know, either I can trade for guys, or or I'll find guys, or I'm hoping this guy will will, will steal more. Like in AL labor, I basically had like 75 steals in Tony Kemp, and I was like, "Come on, Tony Kemp!" <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild. Uh, Steve
0: Carlton, by the way, was the first overall pick in this league, which I think makes a lot of sense in a retro draft. Pitcher injury is eliminated. The season happened. Yeah.
1: You know what you're getting. You're banking it. So. Okay. 295 innings, 23 wins. Oh, my God. Yeah. 310 ERA. A machine. That's a good year.
0: The worst thing that happened in this draft, in my opinion, was the closer run that happened in the late part of round four. If you take a look at the saves leaderboard, that's kind of <gasps> wonky.
1: What? Yeah. It's, what? It's bizarre. They didn't have closers back then or the saves rule or what? Uh, say,
0: like, Look at the shape of those saves.
1: Oh. <gasps> There's one guy with 14 saves, and second place has five saves. Yeah, it's
0: it's really strange. I mean, there are only 16 pitchers. I think the qualified filter might be on. I mean, let me lower that a little bit. Yeah, but if you uh, you look at the shape of saves, there are 12 guys who got to 20. And
1: oh, okay. There was a weird. Oh, the qualified filter. Okay. Yeah, you okay. got to, But okay. they're they're more okay. they're
0: very spread out. But
1: that, that's that's the thing. Ew, I was like, what the. Hell? <laughs> Okay, there's Bruce Sutter, Dan Quisenberry, Goose Gossage. Okay, there was, there were five guys with 30 saves and 12 guys with 20 saves. Still a lot, lot fewer actually than even today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I took Dan Spillner in the fourth round, and I'd never heard of Dan Spillner before yesterday
1: <laughs> because he, he had 133
0: oh, and yeah. in two thirds innings. With a 249 yard
1: and 12 wins
0: and 12 wins. Exactly. That was the thing that really separated him was that his strikeout rate wasn't atrocious. It was probably even a little above average. Six K's per nine. Big, big number back in this era. Uh,
1: Look at Bill Caldell, though. Yes. 12 wins, 26 saves and a 10.4 strikeouts per nine. I think he
0: actually ended up being uh, one of the better values. Jeff Erickson did make a set of dollar values before this. He ended wow. up winning. He took a two in home runs, and he still won the whole thing. Really? By a few points, too. He had a pretty nice margin of victory in this, but he wow. was the guy that took Bill Caudill, uh, with the 11th pick around three, so 35th overall. And again, like, when you take closers is a lot different also when you know they're not going to lose their job.
1: Of course the guy who made dollar values won because there's no... There's no... Like, Doubt. Well, I think what it comes down
0: to also, though, is is having that advanced understanding of where those drops are. That's that's something that you will yeah. have by making those values. If everybody had those values, then you have to sort of do the dance and adjust to what the room's doing to
1: get leverage. It's kind of like the then project it becomes about tears which you know people don't don't say exist, but in this situation. Tears would totally be exist because the only thing that separates everybody, everybody has the same dollar values. Is the only thing that separates is when you get your guy. Yeah,
0: exactly. So if you want to do this, you can do it. I think the key is that of the people you set this up with, you need someone who is really good at Excel. Uh, Todd Zola is really good at Excel. So he made a sheet where he was typing in, team number next to each player on a stat list and it was populating stats as we went along and we had another running thing where each person was putting in their own pick and that was spitting it out into a grid so it takes some prep ahead of time some significant Mm -hmm. prep ahead of time so thank you to todd for for doing that Um, but if you do it it is a lot more fun than even that I expected. I thought I was going to enjoy it, and it was going to be like, oh, okay, well, these guys all beat me because they lived through it. I mean, I took third. I did okay. Uh, and I made some mistakes that I learned from, and I, th- I think it'd be fun to do this for, for other seasons. I mean, the next one this group might do is probably going to be a season before anybody was alive, at least before anybody was playing fantasy baseball. I think we're going to go back to either the 20s, maybe even the 50s, but probably the 20s, just to really try something different.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, baseball was totally different back then. I'm also looking at 1987, um, which is a weird year in the 80s, and I think it's because there was a massive spike in home runs, yes. Um, That's when Mark McGuire hit 49, but it wasn't just that. Andre Dawson, 49, George Bell, 47, Murphy, 44. This is a funny season, 87, because it actually looks a lot more like our game and it was only five years later. Yeah, it's a step in that direction at least. But pitching in the eighties is weird. Like it's
0: oh, it's just so different than anything that most of us who grew up either playing in the nineties or the two thousands, like we just haven't seen anything like that. We probably probably never will see that again <laughs> with strikeout rates that low. I can't even I can't even imagine the full scope of the rules changes that would have to go into effect for strikeout rates to get back to the point they were at in the early 80s.
1: Zane, Sean Raleigh, Shane Raleigh for the Phillies in 87 went 17-11 with 230 innings and a 4.8 strikeouts per nine. Totally normal for the, for the era, but... Uh, so weird. Yeah, I mean, Roger, Roger
0: McDowell who had 25 saves for the Mets in 1987, had a 3.25K per nine. Real good. Yeah. (laughs) Weird. Uh, But yeah, definitely recommend it. If anybody out there is thinking about putting something like that together, I would uh, give you the nudge to go ahead and do it.
1: In 87, you start to see more double-digit strikeouts per nine. It's really interesting. You might might be seeing like the more forward-thinking clubs. I don't know. Because uh, Tom Henke... 12 strikeouts per nine. A Dan Plesak with the Brewers, 10 strikeouts per nine. Dave Smith with the Astros, 11. So it's starting to happen among relievers, at least, where you have the big strikeouts.
0: Yeah, I wonder if there was a velocity bump or something that was happening yeah. at around that time. Be interesting, interesting to track that.
1: 87. Whenever you like, uh, plot things, 87 always pops up and is weird. Oh, actually, wasn't 87 one of the years where the baseball was different? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that it's more conjecture. I'm not sure that they know this. Well, we got to send Dr.
0: Wills some baseballs
1: from 1987. <laughs> it it's
0: the only way to find out. Uh, all right, let's talk about the KBO. They have a date. They are going to start on May 5th, which is awesome. There are still uh, some scrimmages and things that are being streamed. If you know where to look. My KBO on Twitter, Dan Kurtz is the guy you want to follow there. Uh, it gives me hope, you know, that it's been giving me hope all along that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, even if our timeline in America is very different than the timeline for a country like South Korea.
1: Yeah, and I, I honestly think that it uh, gives us a roadmap in a way. Uh, I've talked about this before the temperature taking, the, uh, you know, I think people talk too much about, like, sort of quarantine and sequestering and making it sound like we're going to put the players on an island and they won't be allowed to touch anyone. If you look at what's happening in Korea, that's not at all what it's like. You know, Dan Straley gets to go out and have dinner, um, you know, at the the barbecue place that he wants to go to. So uh, it's a little bit more just about contact tracing and temperature and you know, giving people best practices and yes, reducing some of what they go out, but not just being draconian about it. So if you know Americans, you know, it's not going to work. You're not going to keep Mike Trout from seeing his first uh, son, having being there for the birth of his first kid. So, uh, I I think that, uh, we've got to watch Korea closely and, and hopefully a month from now, we're, you know, doing something similar, ramping up to a similar uh, situation, um, with the, as Korea. And so, uh, It's also baseball, you know, and I think um, there's going to be places to see it. There's still ESPN still in there uh, to maybe get some games on it. Uh, I hope they tape delay it or something. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) uh, we should be able to find some baseball. I know that uh, Taiwanese baseball is streaming, and so people are doing that. But that that league is small and the play is uneven. KBO is a little bit – has gotten better recently and is a little bit closer to uh, Japanese baseball, NPB. Um and so, you know, last Friday I I just tried to highlight some of the stuff that, you know, makes the KBO what it is. There'll be more. I think Trent Rosecrans is gonna write something this week. And um I don't know if either of us are gonna get to it, but the bat flips are amazing. Oh so good. They're so good. It's, it's a bat flip league. Um and I, I love that about it. But it's a 10-team league. Uh, I have a friend uh, who's working on a a new friend who is working on a fantasy game for KBO and NPB right now. Um, And because it's a 10 team league, you kind of it it may look weird to you. You may only pick eight players Um, and it may be a a sort of almost like a weekly pick eight where you pick eight players on Sunday and you get their stats uh, for that week. Um, that's, uh, that's the last, last time I talked to him, that was, that was what he was going to pitch, uh, to the game makers. So there may be something out there, uh, and it's good to have a smaller game because, you know, the average slash line, they deaden the ball in the KBO and the average slash line right now is 268, 340, 388. And that 388 slugging, uh, for the average player means that if you were digging really deep, you'd start getting, uh, my, the mike keiths of the world on your roster and that's what you want really the mike Heath's of the world even <laughs> even the mike keiths so, of the kbo you really want those guys yes yeah, so uh i think uh uh not to not to disparage mike Heath's name he was a, a major league baseball player but um you got to keep it a little bit uh more shallow to reflect the fact that there's a third as many teams um, uh, but one, another fun thing is that foreign players do really well in the KBO. Um, you know, so if you recognize a name uh, on a roster, you're already, uh, out in front, in other words. So like, I think Dan Straley is going to do pretty well there. Uh, ben Lively, uh, who used to be of the Phillies, uh, is there Jose Miguel Fernandez, Mel Rojas Jr. Those are, are names you can recognize and um and jared hoying uh, i i pointed out that former prospect jared hoying he's one of my studs um uh, in the, in the article where, where he hit he's been hitting 280 with a 340 on base percentage and averaging like 25 homers and 20 steals over the last 2 years there so uh he's a stud um and uh you know so then i also uh you know beat the ground a little bit uh and asked some sources for breakout candidates um so uh, you know, I think this is what we do, right? This is we like to, you know, learn all about a new league and learn all about uh these players and so I think um I think uh this will be fun. Oh, the other follow on Twitter by the way,
0: uh is Sungmin Kim at Sung S U N G underscore M I N K I M. If you want to give him a follow as well. So uh, just a lot of fun to have Baseball happening in another country. You mentioned Taiwan before, and I actually haven't been diving into those games at all yet, but the KBO has my attention, probably because there are some familiar players. I think that that sort of helps for me to just have that baseline going in. The Black Tux believes every groom deserves a better experience when it comes to finding formal wear, a suit or tuxedo for their big day. Did you know the black tux was actually started by two guys who had one of the worst tuxedo fittings you could imagine? It turns out they aren't alone in this frustration. Just listen to these one-star reviews from competitor tux shops that shall not be named. Go elsewhere. This place is pretty terrible, unless you're dressing like a grandpa for Halloween. We felt weird buying a suit from somebody so unhappy. We were afraid his bad vibes might follow us to our wedding day, so we left. The Black Tux has an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. Just pick a style at theblacktux.com and request a free home try-on so you can feel the fit and quality before you commit. And if online isn't your style, the Black Tux has showrooms all over the country where you can find your fit and plan your look. From there, they'll ship your order two weeks before your wedding so you can check it out one last time. Talk about commitment. Whether you're buying your outfit or looking to rent, you won't find a formal wear experience or designs like the ones you'll find at the Black Tux. If you want your wedding to be remembered for the right reasons, order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code DRAFT. That's theblacktux.com, code DRAFT, for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right, you know, we have some questions that came in over the last week or so. Thanks to everybody for sending those in. First one comes from Galen. Uh, His question is, I've been thinking lately of the phrase I hear quite often when a pitcher has a bad day on the hill, they often say in one form or another that they lost the feel for a pitch. I often take this at face value. The actual grip the pitcher using the ball on that particular pitch somehow didn't feel right, but lately I've been wondering if some guys might mean something else entirely. Something with arm mechanics or footing or something. So, what does it mean to lose the feel of a pitch? Keep up the great work and stay healthy. All the best. Galen.
1: Oh, um, you know, I first thought of something we just talked about recently on this podcast, which was Chris Bassett talking about losing the feel for breaking balls in the dry Arizona. Um, but we've, we've talked about that. And that's, I think, more along the lines of what you know what this writer was thinking about you know, losing the actual feel of the pitch, like the, where the fingers touch the ball. But I was talking to someone else recently about release point in space, uh, out in front. And, ah, man, who was I talking about? Maybe, maybe Tanner Roark. Um, Oh, maybe it was... No, you know, I think it was Chase Anderson because Chase Anderson has uh, has had a curveball for a while and it's been okay, but then recently it's been getting bad. And I think by the stuff number, uh, it showed up as basically a, a 30 curveball, like basically a, a bottom shelf curveball. In um, you know, I am doing the pitching piece with, with uh, Keith Law this week and uh, I was tempted to put Chase Anderson's curveball as a 30, but I didn't because of this conversation I had with Chase Anderson, which was he's moving to a spike grip, um, and the reason he's doing that is because he's such a changeup guy that he's he's got that feel for pronating, and when he gets to the other side of the ball, he just doesn't have that same feel, and he doesn't have that same release point out in front. So going to the spike grip allowed him just to pretend like it's a fastball and just release it just like where his fastball is. So if you're if you're thinking about like a pitcher's delivery and you're thinking about where he releases the ball and where that is out front, just think about. Uh, trying to pitch to the left uh, side of the plate versus the right side of the plate. I'm just going to use left and right here so, because that works uh, if you're a lefty or righty. So if you're just trying to pitch to the left side of the plate or the right side of the plate, and then think about where your hand will be on release and how it'll look and what that might do. And then that does things to the shape of the pitch. It does um, things to the action on the pitch. And, and it does uh, things to where your mechanics and where you release it. So I think that's a why pitchers have less command to the their glove side because they have to kind of reach across their body uh, and find a new release point. Uh, and b what can happen with guys that have either multiple breakers or a good changeup and, and are struggling with their breaking balls. There's mechanics upon release, basically is the short way of saying it that. Um, that differ from pitch to pitch, and uh sometimes you will lose uh that release point basically is how I would put it yeah i, I would i guess I would answer galen 's
0: question by in like a summary sort of way of saying, yeah, I think you can it 's more than a grip it it can be yeah. uh, other parts of the chain when it comes to pitching that can be a little bit off
1: i think yeah i think you're right to to open it up because it, even adam Ovino said that. Uh, his landing foot, he's so cross body and his landing foot kept drifting towards his body to the point where it was just getting ridiculous. And he was and, and it was great for his movement, uh, but it wasn't great for his command. That that bad year he had in Colorado, he basically when he, in the off season had to kind of retrain to land his he put like a stripe down on the mound and was like, I have to land on the stripe because if he's a little bit left or
0: right. Or front or back of that target, it changes basically everything.
1: Yeah, and I and I was, you know, I was talking to somebody about um, uh, that that thing that like you can watch, you, you can just like move your landing foot because uh, Madison Bungard is so amazing that one thing he can do to uh, change the shape of his pitch um, is change his landing foot so he's mo- pitching more or less across his body. And uh, he's so good at it that he can actually sort of repeat different landing points. And, like, he's cool with it. And I told somebody else that, and they're like, yeah, I know, Madsen Bongar, I can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's
0: like, that takes a a fine level of motor skills that even, yeah, all elite athletes don't necessarily have that specific skill. Like, that's very specialized.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of brilliant that – he realized that your movement your 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 ball is shaped differently if you're going to the left or the right and so he was like well i can change my body to make this seem more left or right you know what i mean yeah so um yeah he did say once because he stopped bumganger stopped talking to me at some point and i <laughs> i got really mad and i was like what you telling me about your curveball grip is not going to help the hitters, man. Like, why don't you just tell me? And he's like, "Well, maybe I want to be a pitching coach someday." And I was still mad at him, and I was like, "That's BS. You're going to make so much money. You're not going to be a, want to be a pitching coach." But um, I do think he thinks like that, and it's I guess it's now that I'm saying something, you know, now that I'm more removed from it and talking about his landing foot, I guess it's possible that he could be a pitching coach someday. I, I think I, <laughs> I think he could absolutely do it if he wanted to. I just think the That's biased. like is Joey Votto gonna be a hitting coach? No, dude. He's gonna ride off in the sunset with tons of money. Be yeah. at Raptors games.
0: Yeah, I just I think a bum garner is someone who has some interests, you know, that are on a ranch or a farm somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, he I mean literally the
1: dude was was in a rodeo like this last year. <laughs> right.
0: I don't know if he necessarily wants to spend his forties and fifties touring the country and telling other people how to pitch when he could do other stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just so tell part. me about that damn curveball grip, Madison. Jeez. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, thanks for the question, Galen. Uh, next question is about Alec Boom. And this is uh, an extension of the conversation we were having. We are talking about, wait,
1: did this, the last question though, had something about Cascadian dark ales and dark vloggers, right?
0: No, nah, that's, that's this one. Oh, okay, good. That's yeah, coming up. Uh, The question stems from the NLDH conversation. We were talking about Scott Kingery as a player who can move around. And um, and the email points out, you know, Gene Segura was playing third base. I think we saw him for that that game we were just referring to a little while ago. The one where Bryce Harper was driving away with a big croissant in his car afterwards. (laughs) Gene Segura played third base that day. Um anyway, with all of that and thinking about the bench, we we thought Jay Bruce was basically the DH for sure, but uh in a scenario where you can shuffle players around the way the Phillies have the ability to shuffle them around, is there a shot for Alec Bohm to be in the DH conversation for the Phillies? I mean, I, I think broadly, I don't think teams wanna take a player that young, especially a player reaching the big leagues for the first time, and put him exclusively in the DH spot, but I think the overall question is basically, is there a way for Boehm to have a regular role? I think that is possible because you could take a guy uh, like Dee and give him an occasional day off because of the depth you have at shortstop. You could give Kingery days off from defensive duty too, or you could move him around and give outfielders days off in the DH spot. And you could make Boehm part of your plan at third base. I mean, I think that's, that is a possibility. Do you think it's realistic at this point that, that Alec Boehm could be, a beneficiary of of the Phillies getting a DH this season,
1: it is. I, maybe we short shrifted him by talking about Jay Bruce. The there's so much changing right now, and like, so for example, baseball is going to meet today, and supposedly with minor league baseball, and supposedly they're going to cut it down, uh, you know, as much or even further than than they plan to. You know, they're going to cut forty fifty teams and we don't even know what kind of a minor league season they can have and if the minor league season is really impacted doesn't exist is pushed off into the future you know then maybe what you were saying about teams wanting to develop their best prospects maybe maybe that could be spun into you know, oh, they'll, they'll have them on the big leagues. Because we're probably talking about expanded rosters beyond, you know, just an extra one or two. We might be talking about sort of 30-man rosters. And if the alternative is Alec Baum sits for two months, you know, and hopes that there's a minor league season, or Alec Baum is in the major leagues playing most days, I think from a developmental standpoint, the Phillies would say, let's get Baum up here. Second, the Phillies go from, in an 162-game playoff percentage, they get an 18% uh, chance of making the playoffs. In an 81-game season, they have a 31% chance. And around the edges, Baum could really help them. I mean, he's only projected to be basically a league average hitter. The bat likes him a little bit less, but most of the rest say league average hitter. However, a league average hitter, you know, when you could be choosing... Uh, especially if you're in a DH game, um, you know, or, or you know, or Jay Bruce is hurt or something, um, then Alex Baum would be it would be much better to have Alex Baum out there than Roman Quinn, bat wise. You know, Roman Quinn is is projected to be eighty bat, uh, eighty WRC plus. It's much better, probably, uh, even to have Baum, uh You know, if Baum plays, so his projections, uh, than Kingery. Honestly, Kingery is projected to regress. Uh, based on you know overreaching us Bab up a little bit and having more power than he than we really thought for him so uh, I think you know if you're saying okay, we're gonna focus on these things. Baum may have uh, poor developmental uh, process in front of him in the minor leagues are uh, uh, we have an extra roster spot or three um, you know Jay Bruce can be the starting dh but we could still use another bat to move around. Uh, and bomb is going to be better than uh, with the bat than some of the guys who are going to play regularly. That seems to add up to Ali bomb in the major leagues.
0: Yeah, I just think this is another type of question that front offices are going to have to sort out internally. What are we going to do to develop the young players who are an important part of our future if we don't have the full minor league? Uh, equivalent available to whatever we're doing in the big leagues, which they won't. They're, they they're, they're not going to have nearly as many options to play minor league games. That seems pretty much impossible.
1: And if it's, uh, let's say it's, uh, they're, they're still playing, but it's like more like the interest, the, the squad games that I was talking about. It's more like developmental games, then I think there'll be a priority put on like let's say you're an A ball, you're 17, 18, 19. That okay, fine. intra squad games is fine. We're 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 focusing on mechanics. We're focusing on this and that. We're just trying to grow you into better players. It's okay if you're not, you know, playing games every day. But if you're more of a finished product and you're more of a double A, you know, 23 year old like bomb. Then how much is that? How much are they going to learn from you know? Taking glorified BP basically, or even if the pitchers are decent, it's like the Phillies pitchers in the minor leagues are not at the same spot as the Phillies hitters. So you know, Baum would just sort of beat up on most of them, unless it's unless he gets to face you know what's his face every day, Spencer Howard. Yeah, you could just you could you could have a Groundhog Day scenario where uh, every every
0: day Alec Baum takes fifteen plate appearances against Spencer Howard. <laughs> <laughs> or
1: every fifth day or whatever
0: but yeah <laughs> yeah every every fifth day yeah you can't do every day that would be bad uh
1: but yeah uh, but but th- that I think that sort of highlights the situation that this the decision making they'll they'll go undergo and as a team that has money and has more money uh, it is uh the, the the backdrop of all this is uh just we don't know how much the economy will be impacted and We don't know how devastating this is going to be for attendance, when attendance is going to even be a thing again. Um, And so there, there will be a powerful influence within the sport to be as conservative as possible monetarily. And that's the big stone that sits on the other side of any ledger that we're trying to any, any sort of balancing act we're trying to make deciding about Alec Baum, right? They could just say, Hey, We have a $330 million man in right field, and everybody's going to make 20%, 30% of what they expected to make this year. And even next year, they might only make, as a team, 60%. So let's keep bomb cheap.
0: Yeah, I guess that could be part of the calculus as well. Still a lot to be sorted out on that front. Uh, This email also included uh, a quick note. Dark ales and black lagers don't get enough pub out there right now. Recently had a Cascadian dark ale from Pontoon Brewing in Atlanta called Not Today, Satan. That was pretty great. Uh, What are some of your favorites? Uh, I think the first beer that popped my mind when I read this email was Surly Damien, which I mentioned Mm. back around Halloween, I think, as a beer of the week. And even that is... It's like a black IPA. It's not quite it kind of fits this description but it's a little bit further well the removed.
1: cascadian dark the cascadian um usually Cascadian ipas are that's what you that's what that is right that'll that'll count in this case for the dark yeah, ale uh, all right yeah
0: yeah i don't know but if they all have names
1: know. like that Damien, not today satan but it it fits the the style of the beer <laughs> for sure or or uh my favorite is kursklitza which is uh just a german the the sort of goat the the original Dark lager. That's that's when I think of Dark Lager. When I think of uh, a Cascading IPA, I think of Wookie Jack. Ah yeah, Wookie Jack. It's a, Firestone, it's a discontinued Firestone Walker beer. Uh, but I believe that some you know Cascadian or the, the, the they're in the mountains up in 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 um, in Oregon and Washington. The Cascades. Sounds and, right. Yeah, and uh, so some people call it a black IPA and then other people call it the Cascadian IPA or whatever. And, um, they're the same thing, but that also suggests that like Deschutes probably has a good one. Um, it's, it has, it is a favor that's fallen out of style. It's definitely not, uh, like Wookie Jack got discontinued and it's definitely like, I can, I'm picturing my Safeway aisle right now. And I don't think there's a single one in it. I'm just thinking of, uh, one more that I had right now, just kind of
0: scrolling through Untapped, uh, Evil Octopus from Mayday. Uh, I had that in Tennessee last summer, spring, May or so. Uh, that was really good too. I, I think I think that a good style. I think it's a good style because if you if you like a more multi-profile, you actually can get that, and you can get it without giving up a lot in terms of of hop character as well. Like I, I just think the balance on those. Tends to be really good, and I, I actually wish they were more readily available. I wish you could walk into a grocery store and, and have a few to choose from.
1: Yeah, I'm starting. You know, <laughs> I bought like uh, you could buy you could get cases of, of beer delivered in California during this, and I and I went over nuts and I bought like Cellar maker and Humble Sea and Pure Project and all these and Highland Park and all these, and I and I'm getting. Closer to like the the back half of this, and I'm getting a little tired of hazy IPAs right now. Suddenly, <laughs> too much of a good thing. So, uh, in my next order, I'm gonna try and be a little bit more judicious and 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 spread out the styles a little bit, uh, and not just get can after can of hazy IPAs. <laughs> so, uh, if I if if one of the places I'm ordering from has that on there, I'm I might jump. Yeah.
0: Good, good to have a, a different sort of profile. That's why I got that Champagne Tortoise, that mild ale, last time I was out. I picked that up. I got a double IPA. I got some hazies. But uh, I'm, I realize everything in my cellar is way too boozy to drink that on a regular basis. So that's, mm-hmm. it's not working at this time. Uh, thanks a lot for that email. You got one more from Greg. He is curious uh, if any players you've talked to are actually interested in fantasy baseball or if they have like positive views and opinions of what we do as a hobby because most of what i've heard from players kind of indirectly has been more like oh fantasy players always ask me to do this or fantasy players are nerds it's usually one of those two things this question comes from greg in boston
1: yeah it's interesting because fantasy football is super popular right like most
0: teams have probably a clubhouse league and or maybe even a front office league as well
1: oh my god Farhan like there's a legend there's like oral histories of how Farhan has dominated his fantasy football league uh Farhan Zaidi, the GM of the Giants and and you know and, and basically any any team that's out of it in September is they're just openly drafting discussing you know the TV gets switched on to you know Matt Barry and you know what I mean. Like they're they're into it, and so I, I I have to imagine that the cognitive disconnect, you know, has to be either strong or at least some of these players are realizing you know fantasy is kind of fun and it's okay if people play fantasy baseball.
0: Yeah, I mean I I would imagine it'd be weird to play fantasy football, but then to completely hate people who play fantasy baseball that just seems yeah, exactly
1: position. Yeah, that's my
0: point <laughs> or to look down on them like i i could see not wanting to talk about it if you play the game like that i can get that i can understand not wanting to play fantasy baseball if you play real baseball i think that makes sense as well it was something that our colleague michael beller was saying on uh, fantasy baseball in 15 like coming out of high school and going into college he played baseball had a chance to go play i think it was d2 or d3 he said and he just kind of laughed off playing fantasy baseball until a few years later he's like I grew up and then I <laughs> I actually thought I realized it was cool and I enjoy it but I, I think I think that, that's an attitude that I think a lot of players probably would have about fantasy baseball in particular
1: yeah the switches between fantasy football and fantasy baseball is that they're not really allowed to play fantasy baseball right it's I think it's like literally in in the CBA or something but it's like it's it's a, it's a lot too close to betting on on baseball. So they're not allowed to play it. Um they don't like like I, I made the mistake once of asking Dexter Fowler uh why I didn't steal more bases and I think I mentioned my fantasy team. <laughs> um, that did not that did not go well. Uh so they don't want to be seen as like random number generators for your fantasy team. Uh they don't like that. Um but I would say in the Pantheon of things that they don't like this uh, fantasy baseball is way, way, way behind uh autograph seekers. And uh the place that it's gotten most complicated is when a player becomes an autograph seeker. Oh an autograph yeah, hound. Yeah,
0: yeah. There's a few stories about that,
1: yeah. Who was the guy that publicly got in such a battle with uh Zach Greinke? It was Pat Neshek who was collecting, uh, you know, would send things over to get signed from the other clubhouse, send this clubby to get things signed to the other clubhouse and uh, sort of collect things. And I have to say, I kind of a hundred percent come down on Zach Greggie side on that one, because you, as a player, I've seen this, you know, I go through the same tunnels as the players. I, I access the field the same way as the players. And, there are these throngs of people and it's good they're supporting the game and they're collecting and I'm a collector I was a collector I have my whole baseball card collection sitting right behind me it's got some signatures on some balls and stuff I've got Tom Glavin's signature you know uh I've got Dale Murphy so you know like i i understand it and it's cool but it's also kind of devolved into this frenzy this feeding feeding frenzy where People develop these lies. Oh, I went to school with your sister, or, you know, they get little details and they develop these stories, and I, I swear half of them are lies. And so the players don't know who's lying to them and who's not. And then there'll there'll be people that come with kids and they put their kids out in front of them. And so now you're, they have these like six year olds who are super cute. And the guy thinks he's signing for a six year old, but the six year old turns around and gives all the signed stuff to their dad or their uncle or whatever, who's going to go sell it on eBay or whatever it is. So, you know, there's all these like kind of gross practices that happen around it. Um, and, it, it, it's like one of the, the one time that like the public gets to interact with the player and it's so like needy and like give me give me give me that the players get really turned off by it and so uh, you know it's it's actually a pretty selfless act when a player does sign because they they get inundated you know and I actually understand when a player's like not today you know like just not today i'm not feeling it today um and so then you get into the clubhouse and you think ah you know my bbwa card says i may not ask for an autograph. If I do that, I lose my BBWA card. Like I lose my ability to go in the clubhouse. So the clubhouse is supposed to be a place where you don't have to do it. Now there are corporate things where the owners or the giants say, Hey, we have these game balls. We're giving them away to kids in in the hospital or this or that. And so there'll be like a, a thing out in the middle and everybody has to come by and sign a Jersey or something. It's for charity or whatever it is. Um, so that, so they, you know, that is there in the clubhouse, but it's a little different than the clubby coming over and being like, Pat Neshek says, can you sign this game ball for him? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh,
0: something about that exchange is still not quite right. Like I can, I understand where, you know, Neshek has probably a, a fond appreciation for the game and respects the players he's competing against, but it just doesn't seem appropriate.
1: I'd be really interested to see what, like, you know, Brad Ziegler thinks of it. Um, I think that's, you should probably import that question over sometime if you're talking to him. I think he may have talked about
0: that on an episode of The Throwback. It's now called, uh, or was at the time called Sports Unsealed. But yeah, he's talked about that before, how he's had to kind of limit the number he'd sign and, and do it a
1: certain way. No, but even, I mean, even the sort of the, the larger question that started this was the you know, how he feels about fantasy. I would say that they. They don't love it. They don't hate fantasy baseball. Uh, I think they realize it. it creates a lot of interest uh, around lesser games and that people might be watching just for them. So like, I think some of them might like it a little bit. It's like, you know, I'm Brian Anderson on the Marlins and nobody really cares about me except for the bunch of people who have me in their fantasy league.
0: This is a sad but true fact about the current state of the Marlins and and how that impacts Brian Anderson. (laughs) Uh, Beer of the Week came in from Greg as well. Trillium's twice the daily serving. Blackberry and pomegranate Berliner Weiss. Uh, That's a great call. It's a Weiss beer. It has a real milkshake feel to it. Pretty much a juice explosion. Trillium's always good. So, yeah, if you're in a Mm. place to get Trillium, you absolutely should. If you're enjoying the show on a platform that allows you to rate and review the podcast, you should do that. That'd be great if you did it for us. We'd really appreciate it. If you could also sign up for a subscription to The Athletic, obviously we appreciate anybody who's doing that. You can get 40% off at TheAthletic.com slash Rates and Barrels. You can also get a free trial, though. If you're not sure about it, not in a position to pay right now, we totally understand TheAthletic.com slash free 90 days if you'd like to go that route. On Twitter, he's at Enoceras. I'm at Derek Van Riper, as always. You can reach us via email, ratesandbarrels at theathletic.com. Thanks for the many great questions we received this week. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening.